The Moment Has Arrived. I'm Tom Dickinson, and this is Doctor Who The Moment. Each episode, a guest drops by to chat about a moment from an episode of Doctor Who that they had a strong reaction to, or that meant a lot to them. This week, another dip into the archives while I ask you to wait patiently for Season 4 of The Moment to emerge from its chrysalis. Today, we're reaching back to Season 1 of The Moment, when I spoke to Talcott Star about a moment from the 2010 Doctor Who Christmas special, A Christmas Carol, starring Matt Smith as the Doctor, and Sir Michael Gambon as Catherine Sardik, sort of the Scrooge figure in this homage to the Dickens classic. It's Christmas Eve on an unnamed alien world, and the planet is wrapped in fog so dense fish can swim in it. In order to stop a spaceship crash, which threatens to kill thousands, the Doctor needs to clear up the fog. But the one man who can use the planet's weather-controlling machine, Kazrin Sardik, just happens to be a heartless monster. He's the kind of man who laughs at poor people when he loans them money, and for collateral, he takes a family member and locks them up in cryogenic stasis in his basement. Since the Doctor needs Kazrin on his side, he travels through time to rewrite the man's life and make him a kinder person by subjecting him to goofy Christmas antics. During one such antic, the Doctor and young Kazrin unfreeze one of the people in stasis in Sardic Manor's basement, a young woman named Abigail. From then on, the Doctor turns up every Christmas and unfreezes Abigail for a day to go on adventures with the Doctor and Kazrin in the TARDIS. As the years go by, Kazrin and Abigail fall in love one Christmas at a time. But when Kazrin learns that Abigail has only days left to live, and each day he unfreezes her is one day closer to her death, he becomes distraught and refuses to unfreeze her again, leaving her frozen in his basement for decades with one day left on the clock. By the end of the episode, Kazrin has finally come around to wanting to help the Doctor, but the only way to stabilize the turbulent fog is with Abigail's singing voice. Look, trust me, it's a complicated episode, but it all makes sense in context. Reluctantly, Kazrin agrees to release his beloved Abigail to let her live one last day. And then Abigail begins to sing. Right kind of at the end of the episode, when Kazrin and Abigail are there, they've woken her out of sleep. They know it's her last day. The ship is about to crash. We're going down! Onto the planet. And what is that? What, what are you listening to? This is coming from outside. Abigail starts singing. This is coming from natural clouds to clear the fish. Because Doctor Who is a deeply weird and wonderful show sometimes. And she starts singing, and the music plays, and as she's singing. Kazran, who's this fairly old man at this point, is standing there just staring at her almost in disbelief. She's there the same age she's pretty much always been throughout basically his entire life. And she's looking back at him and the looks on their faces. He is looking at her as this ghost of his past he figured he would never see again. Even though she had one more day left, he couldn't bring himself to bring her out of cryostasis for that one last day. For her, this has only been about a week or so of time, their entire relationship. And she's looking at him 
and still seeing him the same way she's seen him every time. It's still him. And so you have this moment of her looking at him while she sings and him looking back at her. And it's almost this ghostly connection of reliving your past and the way people change but don't change and that question which is why this scene hits me so hard now too of what would it mean to see someone you lost so long ago for one more time and almost more so what will it mean for them to see you to see how much you've changed hello my old friend would they still love you the same way? Would they still see you the same way even if you have changed over 30, 40, 50 years since then? So why is it that you picked this moment? Do you, do you want me to jump into the whole my whole personal backstory with this episode too? If you're if you're okay with doing that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So th- this episode to me is almost similar to Kazrin's arc in a way where it's had very different but connected meanings since I first watched it. When I first met my wife, Valerie, right around when this episode came out, so the end of 2010, we had met online through mutual friends and arranged a number of basically dates, but neither of us acknowledged this. For one of those, we went over to a friend's house to watch this episode. And about a week later, we would be dating. And at that time, it was just, oh, this is a fun episode. Like, it's always been my favorite Christmas episode, always since it came out. Mm -hmm. But it, it wasn't like a big milestone thing other than it was kind of a pseudo date before we started dating. Flash forward to about three years ago, Valerie died. And suddenly this episode that was always this kind of fun touchstone in our relationship became a whole lot more loaded. Mm. But in this almost cathartic way, too, because of that final scene, that moment where, you know, there, there is all of the sadness. There's all of this loss in this episode. But there's also so much joy and that whole... I hesitate to call it a redemption arc because that's not really what this is exactly. But that idea of, you know, love can still change you even if it's far in the past, even if it's something that you've you know lost, if it's something that isn't there with you anymore. You know, the people we've lost and loved are still with us in a way. You probably can't remember your family. And we can still bring them well, out. Yes, I can when I want to. And, and they can still live. see us. I have to really want to bring them back in front of my eyes the rest of the time they they sleep in my mind even if not literally like that connection is always there and i think that's what that final scene kind of meant to me how do you feel about the song the music i love that song so much <laughs> i specifically looked for it to try to find it for like christmas mixes and things like that and it's not even it's not even a specifically christmas song which i kind of love about it too but the lyrics of it kind of tie so much back in. Those lyrics of when you're alone, silence is all you know. You know, silence is all you see. Silence is all you need. This is such a lonely episode. Like, even though you have Amy Rory, you have the Doctor, you have Kazrin, you have Abigail, you have all of the minor characters, it's mostly an episode about an old man sitting in a chair sad or scared and alone yeah and that song is just so hauntingly beautiful 
it matches the you know set design fish that can swim in fog i mean i love that planet i love new planet it's like a snow globe and i think that that's why the fish work so well visually is the fish swim around in it as if that whole planet is a snow globe there's something both threatening and magical about it. Um, yeah. Kind of like the ocean. If you were to do a Doctor Who episode set under the sea, it would possibly have much the same, but threatening <laughs> while also being kind of charming. Which is a good description of the Doctor. Was that a sort of threatening thing? Yeah. Whatever happens tonight, remember. Especially Matt Smith's Doctor, actually. You brought it on yourself. Oh, yeah, and I think he's particularly on, on that form in this episode. He has a very particular thing that he needs to get done. And he's going to do it by any means necessary. Mm -hmm. He doesn't necessarily do this as a gift to improve this old man's life. That's just a consequence of him saving the lives he needs to save. Absolutely. Like, this is 100% just saving the ship. Do you think it was right for the doctor to do what he did in this episode? Yes, I, I think so. His intentions were definitely good. And and I love, I almost picked as my moment earlier in the episode, the scene where he starts going back in time into the recording and talks to Kazran in the future. Times change. What did he say? Through the recording and mentions that his memories will change. Now, your past is going to change. That means your memories will change too. Bit scary, but you'll get the hang of it. Obviously, you know, he saves 4,000 people and probably many more because it's implied that Kazrin isn't going to be evil and, you know, use the fish to... It's not really fully implied how they make money off the fish, but... Why do we want to control the fish? People are cattle. If you want to control cattle, you need to control their predators. Somehow controlling the fish makes the money, um... (laughs) I, I think there's definitely a net good from it. And I think that Kazrin is a happier person by the end of the episode than he would have been otherwise. Mm. But it's kind of cruel on the part of the Doctor in a way. I would never have known her if the Doctor hadn't changed the course of my whole life to suit himself. Well, that's good, isn't it? No. All of that sadness and heartbreak wouldn't have happened if the Doctor hadn't intervened. But at the same time... All of that joy and love wouldn't have happened if the doctor hadn't intervened. I guess the part that I would question is I don't know that any of this is fair to Abigail. Some of that is the question of would she ever get out of the ice? Like if she is going to be locked in ice for eternity or until civilizations change. Best Christmas Eve ever. Then this is definitely better. Till the next one. I look forward to it. Like she. No, I'd like to say goodnight to Catalan. Of course, yes. I think she definitely falls in love. Well, on you go. She has a great time. Oh, oh, yes, right. Sorry, if she only has seven days left, that's a hell of a way to use your last seven days of life. Hmm. And and obviously the doctor doesn't know that she only has seven days left either when this starts. But I think that there is definitely a unbalanced dynamic there. And I think that as much as I love this episode, I kind of wish that that could be addressed a little bit more because so much of what I love in this episode has to do with their relationship. But that's it's a very one-sided relationship between the two of them. And we don't really know a whole lot about her other than... My sister's family. Her family has fun Christmases. They're so happy. And they needed... They look very poor. They are very poor. Doesn't mean you can't be happy. Or she volunteered to be put on ice to... You took a loan of 4,500 giddies. Help them pay for... And Little Miss Christmas is my security. Whatever they needed. I assume food and just basic necessities. I still feel a little iffy about the idea of Abigail being the tool they use. At the same time, if it weren't for the situation, he would never have taken her out of the ice. If my wife was, you know, on ice and I knew that I had one more day with her, I could objectively say that I shouldn't wait 
my entire life and keep her locked away in the ice. But I don't know that I could decide this is the one day that will be our last day together. One last day with your beloved. We stay with you, choose. It's a hell of a thing to decide. Christmas. Christmas Day. The moment, the moment in the episode when she finally emerges from it. So old now. And basically says, I think you waited a bit too long, didn't you? Holding my days like an old miser. (laughs) That just, it cuts for a few different reasons. I mean, one of which is that it's so evocative of the Charles Dickens Christmas Carol mythology that the episode is drawing on. Mm -hmm. But also, there's something very happy about that moment where he almost shouldn't have the opportunity now. He did wait too long, but he's still getting that one last day anyway at this point yeah and that's that look she gives him is the same look that she has during the song like she's not mad at him for waiting she's not sad that she missed him earlier in life there's definitely this sympathy the sadness that you know he let himself you know suffer this long but she's just happy to see him she doesn't see him as the old man she sees him as the same um yeah she she doesn't struggle to recognize him she right so what do you think the little boy, Kazran, who eventually meets the older version of Kazran. Is this who you want to become, Kazran? Recognizes something of, of the father, oh. rather than seeing him for who he is. Dad? Which is a moment that shocks him into becoming kind of more himself. Yeah. And then when she finally sees him, she doesn't, you know, she presumably would have known what his father looked like because his father was a very big, important person on the planet at the time that she was living her life before being put on ice. So, but she, uh, she immediately knows, no, that's him. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, that's, it's the idea that people don't necessarily age. They get older, but they're still the same person even though you're not the same person. That's very Doctor Who. It, it's incredibly Doctor <laughs> Like, this may honestly be the ultimate Doctor Who episode. Like, not necessarily the best ever, although it's definitely one of my favorites. But I feel like this episode does almost everything Doctor Who does. I think you might be right about that. I think, well, it's certainly my favorite Christmas special. Oh, yeah. I think it might be the most Christmassy and also the best in terms of quality. But also, like like you say, it does so much Doctor Who. It has the past, the present, the future. It's taking existing pop culture stuff and, and remixing it, whether that's Dickens or Star Trek or both. <laughs> and it's it's doing all the things that Doctor Who does best. And yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Well, and that scene where she tells him what's going on. That was the other thing I related to a lot is that... I have something to tell you. That moment... A bad thing. Whereas a couple, you find out one of you is going to die. A very bad thing. And I never went through quite his kind of shut it all down anger phase he does afterwards. Mm. But that moment where they're just kind of holding each other and crying. And the doctor cannot figure out or understand why. But they're in their own world. They're completely in what's happening to them. And they don't even notice the doctor outside. And I thought that was played really well. Yeah. Would you consider Kazran to be, like, do you identify with him as a widower? I do. Well, I think that for all intents and purposes, he is. Mm-hmm. Because while their love is pretty brief, like, it's it lasts many years for him, but it's still only a week's worth of days. It's strongly implied that is the major love in his life, unless there's a whole other side adventure that we don't see. Like, he doesn't fall in love or get married afterwards. And while she doesn't technically die until 
you know, off screen after the end of the episode. From his perspective, she's used up her time. There isn't a functional difference necessarily between Those Christmas Eve's with me. She's dead or she's locked in ice. I could release her anytime I want. And I can never bring her out of the ice because then she'd die. And she would live a single day. I, I think for the most part, all of that kind of widowhood grief feelings would still apply for him. I think that's actually kind of a recurring theme through the Christmas episodes of Doctor Who. <laughs> the very next one after this is the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe. Oh, you're right. But also, Matt Smith, his doctor, kind of has this defining relationship. Her name was River Song. With a wife who... They were together for a while, and they were very happy. Depending on how you look at it... And then she died. That he knows... A long time ago. For many years, and is married to for many years, or that is dead on the day he meets her. He both is and isn't yeah. widowed. He, I, I think at this point in his arc, he doesn't even know that he's married yet. But he's in the process of of kind of learning that he's grieving for his wife. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. But isn't it kind of implied that River is conceived in this episode? Technically, the first time they're on the TARDIS together in this version of reality was on their... On their what? If not in this episode, then... On their wedding night. Around this episode, certainly. Yeah. I, I, wow. I hadn't even made that connection because I, I definitely, I, I remember the final River Song episode having a lot of, Why are you sad? Why are you sad? Because that episode aired. I told you, my diary's nearly full. After Vala died. I worry. Definitely had a. Please don't. Oh, this is, this is a widowish episode. For you, is Christmas a happy time or a, an unhappy time? The Christmas season is a very happy time, and I think I've actually leaned into it a lot more since being widowed. One of the kind of unexpected results of being widowed is looking for media with other widowed people in it hmm. takes you directly to Hallmark Christmas movies, because everyone is widowed in Hallmark Christmas movies. And I've really kind of doubled down on that and really gotten into those. And I'll spend most of November and December watching Christmas movies. And I love it when stores put out the Christmas stuff early and things like that. But when you actually hit Christmas Day, it's kind of like a black hole of there's everything on the outside. It's great. Um, I don't know if that actually holds oh, yeah. up for a black hole. But gravity, schmavity, my people practically invented black holes. Well. Yeah, you have everything on the outside, but once you actually approach the center, there's always a sadness on Christmas Day itself. There's that, you know, sense of loss of, you know, Val should be here and this should be, you know, a time that we're together and, you know, she isn't and it won't be. And so I would say overall, Christmas is a happy time. I don't know that it's a happy day. And you mentioned that this song is a song that particularly struck with you. And it's a very, uh, it's an operatic song. I think um, the the actress who plays Abigail is an opera singer more than she's an actor. Is that is that the kind of music that you generally find yourself listening to? or So not opera necessarily, but I like a lot of darkly haunting music. Um, mm-hmm. Especially around Christmas, I like a lot of kind of darker, folkier Christmas songs. I don't think it's music that I listen to all the time, but it's definitely the kind of music I drift to towards Christmas. Christmas songs and Christmas time. So the other big kind of music moment is you start hearing Silent Night. Everybody on the ship that is crashing starts singing Silent Night. Amy appears to Kazran as a hologram. So holograms. Rejections like me. Because at this point he's still refusing to let them through. The ship up there, the ones that you're going to let die tonight. She tries to convince him that way. Why are they singing? And then... For their lives. 
eventually things reverse. How did I get here? You didn't. It's your turn to be the hologram. And he's now the hologram on the ship. He's seeing the ship as the control room is falling apart. And it's very, very Star Trek-y. This might be the most Star Trek-y thing I've seen in Doctor Who 2, which might be the other reason I love it. Um, the scene. So Kazarin's on the ship. What is it? Everyone in the background I don't understand. is still singing Doctor's Silent idea. Night. The harmony's resonating the ice crystals. That's why the fish like and it. And he asks why. He thought that maybe it would stabilize the ship. But it isn't working. And it's not powerful enough. Why are they still singing, man? Because we haven't told them. They don't know that it's not working. I honestly feel like that might be the turning point for him. Like, that is what finally convinces him that he can do something to let them through. What do you imagine life is like for Kazran after the events of this story? I don't know. It's definitely implied that he's a changed man. You know, it's Scrooge at the end of Christmas Carol. Sure. But I don't know what that actually means. Like, I assume that he... I, I'd like to assume <laughs> that he, you know, shares the technology to stabilize the crystals instead of letting a few fish through and maybe releases all of the people... What's all this for? ...that are in the basement. My dad lends money. He always takes a family member as... That's kind of horrific. He calls it security. Yeah, that, that's I like. I don't oh, know. No. Like, I really have no idea. And I think that that's. I think it works really well for a one shot story. I think it's also a one shot story that probably works better if you don't think too hard about the repercussions after it ends. Mm. He's still going to mourn after she dies. Like, he's still going to probably hold her hand while she dies. Like, we don't know what this disease that she's dying of is, that she has a very specific amount of time. But this might be his last happy day. Like, he could become bitter again afterwards. And we just don't know. We just know that in this moment, he got to see her again, and she got to see him again. And he chose to save 4,000 people instead of letting them, you know, die. What there is in the future, kind of, it's still kind of up in the air. Yeah. The topics of, of grief and loss that are in this episode, I know this is something that you would have a lot of occasion to think about because of its impact on you, but also because you co-host a podcast on the topic. <laughs> so I'm curious to know, do you think that grief and loss are topics that Doctor Who handles particularly well? I, I think it does. And I haven't gone back and rewatched a lot of it since I've become a XNL expert on grief, I guess. <laughs> but like, I thought that Clara's death was handled actually really well. Yeah, like Heaven Sent was such a good metaphor for the day you lose someone isn't the worst. You know, that feeling at least you've got something to do trapped in your own grief. It's all the days and they stay dead. You know, the little things you do to get out of it. That idea of eternally punching a wall, and it doesn't... It's because it's what you have to do. This is how my world works, Clara. I tick off the seconds as they pass. My life like, is a countdown. That's so much in the immediate aftermath of something. If I draw the creature to one extreme of the castle, and I run to the other extreme... You know, something tragic, some... I can earn myself a maximum... Loss of someone who you're mourning. 82 minutes. You know, you don't have a tart. It's like time... 82 minutes. ...doesn't stop. Eat, sleep... Work. You can't go back. You can't go forward. Well, you can't go far forward. You have to go forward, though. Like, you have to wake up and eat breakfast and breathe and punch that wall until you can't punch the wall and you're dead. So you wake up the next day and <laughs> fight through the castle and punch the wall. And little by little, you do move forward in that. And 
And I think that, you know, we see a little bit of that in this past season with Bill and even a little bit with Heather, like that, that there's almost a parallel, actually, as I'm thinking Goodbye. about it with <laughs> Abigail and Kazrin and Bill and Heather. Yeah, sure. Um, obviously, Bill and Heather go on to have adventures, but you know, it, it goes back to that theme of you know, seeing someone who you thought you'd never see again because they were basically dead and they can see no matter what you look like, no matter who you are, they can still see the you underneath that they love. Does that feel dead to you? I mean, that's definitely there when, you know, Heather's looking at Cyberman Bill and, you know, there there's so much of that with the Doctor and River and them seeing basically, you know, these final moments from the, each of their perspectives. And that relationship is just so much weird love and grief. Trouble and is, it's all back to front. Because they're never on the same page with My that. past is his future. Mm. You know, they can be on the same page. We're traveling in opposite directions. In a moment, but... Every time we meet... I know him more. They're never in the same place in life. He knows me less. When they're together. And they're, you know... I live for the days when I see... Grieving different things and different people around them at different times. And... But I know that every time I do... But that's the way, like... One step further away. So much of grief is, is it isn't linear. Like, the number of times I've described it as something equivalent to wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Like, it's... It's all over the place. And I think that... Doctor Who is so much a show about emotions over pretty much everything else. Hmm. You have your sci-fi battles, your historical fiction, your, you know, weird puzzle box plots, but it is primarily a show about emotions and how people react to each other. And, you know, grief is such a big part of that. Even just the idea of regeneration, you know, you're different people throughout your life. And sometimes you mourn for the people you used to be. And sometimes you don't like the people you used to be. And sometimes people see you as that same person. Sometimes it's different people. And there's there, there's still grief in all of that in a way. And I think that that all kind of loops together in Doctor Who. I'm, I'm going to ask a, I'm going to ask a, um, a weirdly philosophical question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> About the nature of art and what it's for and what it does. <laughs> Um, but one of the criticisms that often gets leveled at Doctor Who and at Stephen Moffat's tenure on Doctor Who as its showrunner is that death is so cheaply undone. And that while in our world, death is a thing that happens and it doesn't unhappen. In Doctor Who, the deaths that stick are the rare ones. <laughs> and that's just not real. <laughs> How do you feel about that, given all we've talked about on this on this topic? Because the things we're talking about, like the Doctor and River, Kazrin and Abigail, you know, Amy and Rory dying a thousand times and meeting each other again in this universe, that universe, other universes, plastic bodies, etc., <laughs> um, it's not real. And it's so rare that we see it in a way that's real. Do you think that's a failing on Doctor Who's part? I think that in another show, it would definitely be a failing. For me and Doctor Who, I care more about how it's handled kind of in the moment, um, so to speak. <laughs> uh, it's I assume people are coming back. I can't think of any character that they would kill off who I would not expect to see again. I mean, how many times do we see the Master die? How many times, obviously, do we see the Doctor die? So, so people are going to come back. I just assume that in a show like this. I'm more interested in how people react in the moment because... For whatever reason, the characters haven't figured it out. The characters don't know that everybody is going to come back. Hmm. And so if that gives us a good portrayal of grief or mourning, 
I'm I'm okay with that. It could be an issue for plotting. Like you can make a criticism of we're going back to the same well of we killed this character and now they've come back. I think you can still make the emotions work for that though. You can still have real portrayals of grief, real portrayals of mourning and loss. You look at, you know, Heaven Sent, like that is this intense portrayal of grief and loss. Clara's, you know, she's fine. She's going to fly around with me for a long time. (laughs) It doesn't make that less of a portrayal of grief and loss because the doctor doesn't know that's going to happen. Hmm. And, And there are other shows like there are shows that are trying to be more realistic. But this is a, you know, show about a semi immortal alien who is weirdly obsessed with late 20th, early 21st century Earth and bases every part of their life around it for some reason. And I don't necessarily need permanence or realism. I just want some emotional weight. And I think Doctor Who does that really well. And I think Moffat does that better than he gets credit for. Hmm. I want Doctor Who to be bonkers and off the wall Mm -hmm. because so often when it gets bonkers and off the wall, that's when you also get these very kind of grounded conversations against that. And I think that almost helps them stand out. And that is it for the moment this week. Thanks again to Talcott Starr, my guest, who joined me for this episode in 2018. At the time, they were one of the co-hosts on Death Prattle, a podcast about death and grieving. But that show is on indefinite hiatus. You can, however, still find the old episodes out there, wherever you like to find old episodes of podcasts. And nowadays, you can also find Talcott on Twitter at Talcott S. That's T-A-L-C-O-T-T-S. Season 4 of The Moment draws ever closer, but its secrets shall remain mysterious for now. Keep up with the latest on the show by following the show on social media. Find us at The Moment Pod on Instagram, The Moment Pod on TikTok, or The Moment Pod on Mastodon.social. You can also sign up to support the show when it returns over at patreon.com slash themomentpod. I'm Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back in a moment.